Yorana Tato, Aloha Kako, and Ola. Welcome to Native Stories. Native Stories exists to share the voices of those connected to the land. Our vision is creating a resource for Pilina, or connection to place, and Native Stories aims to activate Indigenous perspectives. Obatii o Vihia Wheeler, no Tepenua Vahi Mayao, Baeavao i Tepenua Moorea, Tiene, Tiete Tou Penua Tumu. Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Vahia Wheeler. I am born and raised in Hawaii on Oahu, and I am living now in Morea, which is my ancestral homeland in the South Pacific. And today we have our guest, Dr. Jessica Hernandez, who I'm very excited to welcome to Native Stories today. Um, she is an Indigenous environmental scientist. She has just released or is about to release her book called Fresh Banana Leaves, which is about why Western conservation isn't working at the current moment and offers Indigenous models informed by case studies, personal stories, and family histories that center the voices of Latin American women and land protectors. How exciting. And Yorana and Aloha, Jessica. As Beia mentioned, my name is Dr. Jessica Hernandez, and I'm excited to be here today. So thank you for welcoming me to Native Stories. Yeah, yeah, this is exciting because we usually have uh, people of the Pacific or Turtle Island um, on our podcast. So it's great to expand to hear voices of Latin America or Global South or what you call it, but to expand our relationships and our kin since we know we're all, you know, going through the same, a lot of the same things. And so we can hear your stories about that. So why don't you just start with your, um, you know, your ancestral background, what lands you're responsible to, um, and a little bit about yourself and where you grew up. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. So I am Maya Chorti in Zapotec. So the Maya Chorti community is in Central America, to be specific, in the country of El Salvador. And then the Binisa Zapotec Nation is in Oaxaca, Mexico. And I'm currently displaced on Duwamish lands, also known as Seattle. Ah, okay. And so um, I know you talk a lot in your book about your own history. It sounds like it's, you know, a your own uh, self-biography or autobiography. Um, so why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about that, like your own um, viewpoint about land and how you got in- interested in doing things like uh, environmental sciences around your ancestral homelands. Yes. Um, so basically, um, I am displaced. I was displaced. My father was actually displaced from our paternal ancestral lands due to war. That's the civil war that occurred in Central America. That war has been coined as a genocide against indigenous peoples by the United Nations. So when I look at genocide, um, you know, oftentimes people coin it as something in the past. But for me and my relatives, genocide has occurred in my father's. Um, generation. And I think that as a result, because that war targeted indigenous Maya people from Central America, and when I speak about Central America, I'm speaking about Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, like all the Central American countries that 
basically experienced that civil war, um, it targeted indigenous peoples of those countries. So as a result of the war, my father was displaced at a young age because in that war, they forced children to fight in that war. So my father was 11 when he was forced to (gasps) join the war. And then he eventually stopped when he was 14. So at the age of 14, he was displaced from his lands and eventually made it to Oaxaca, Mexico, where my mother's um, indigenous pueblo gave them refuge. And when I say them, it was like him and other several children that were, um, you know, leaving their countries. And that's how they met. And as a result, during that time, the United States was actually... um, kind of like supported the war right they supported the government they gave the soldiers from the you know from the army Mm -hmm. they trained them and things like that so i guess as a result the united states decided to give them refuge anybody who have fought in the war so as a result my father eventually was displaced to what we now call the united states wow wow that's um uh a history that i think you've you highlighted it that we talk about genocide being the past, right? And like when I grew up, I grew up in America, like if we talked about genocide, it was always about something happening in the 1940s in Germany, you know, like something very far from us, something very, um, you know, in the past. And like you're saying, it's happening right now and our own and American government is supporting that yes. as well. So those are some heavy truths that we should be looking at, and thank you for bringing that to light. And so, um, what what exactly was the war about? So it was basically like um, because you know the what they called you know the lower class the indigenous communities wanted to fight against the oppression they were experiencing, especially um, during that time. There was a lot of plantations introduced into Central America, so there was like a big you know the one percent that had money. They will you know force indigenous peoples to work for like nothing, right? They basically pay them in tortillas, in beans, and like you know small cents in comparison to um, what you know they were they were earning in the plantation are like from banana plantations, pineapple plantations. So it's kind of similar to, you know, the history that Hawaii and other, you know, Pacific Islands nations experience as well, right? Because you are introducing this agricultural monoculture, right, where they have plantations and obviously it's the lower working class that is forced to, you know, that doesn't have another option and it's forced to work in those, under those conditions, so the war was basically going against, you know, the upper class and all the oppression they were experiencing for so many years. And obviously the resistance movements were happening before the war started. But, you know, eventually the government, uh, you know, in alienation with like the United States decided that they were going to try to stop that rebellion, right, that resistance movement. And as a result, that's when the war broke eventually. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. Like you were saying, um, plantation history is a part of our own history in the Pacific and the world. And, uh, yeah, it's the same exact thing. It's, um, it's monocultures coming in and it's, um, underpaying workers or not having honest contracts or immigrants importing immigrant labor that's a lot of that was happening in Pacific as well importing immigrant labor as to settle then settle a new island or a place and within 
the um, government's own vision. So kind of, you know, displacing indigenous people in their own lands or disempowering them in certain ways. So, yeah. yeah. Wow. And so that war went on for, um, is it still going on or has that ended during your father's yeah. lifetime? Yeah, it ended like in the 1990s and like every historical account has a different, you know, like, um, what is a year? But it's mm-hmm. eventually the 1990s it ended. But, you know, as a result, a lot of people were displaced. A lot of indigenous peoples were, you know, murdered because of the genocide that was taking place because it was, you know, because it was an indigenous resistance movement that eventually became a war when the government decided that it was going to go against it. Um, you know, it was a lot of indigenous peoples who were targeted and, you know, everything is still, that history is still, you know, like we still carry that through intergenerational trauma through, you know, the lands, everything that we experience even today, unfortunately. And so with the work today, were you able, or actually growing up and currently, were you able to visit your homelands and have a connection with with these places? Even though, I mean, I know you have a connection with it through your parents, obviously, but um, were you able to visit these places when you were growing up and currently? Yeah, so I was able to visit more of my mother's lands, especially growing up. It was like very frequent because like um, both of my parents are the only ones displaced from their family. So like we don't have, you know, relatives in what we call the United States. However, for my father's um, lands, it took us a little bit longer to get, you know, to get build that connection and as a young child I really didn't understand why my father didn't want to go back to his lands but you know his lands carry that trauma carry those memories of the war that he experienced right at a young age so it took him a little bit longer it took him you know we had to undergo his healing process in order for us to go back to El Salvador to Central America because as I talk in the book like our lands also carry that trauma but they also carry our healing right so it's like kind of coming into that relationship with how our environment also carry those memories that are embedded in us as humans through intergenerational trauma or through the trauma that we experience. So, yes, I frequented more in my mother's lands, um, but eventually as I grew older and my father underwent his healing process, we eventually made it to his lands and built those connections with our relatives and communities as well. Oh wow, that's great! And why don't and then why don't you tell us a little bit about fresh banana leaves and what you address exactly in that book? Yeah, so in the book, I I basically start with my father's story because I think it plays a big role in why I eventually decided to become an environmental scientist. And I think that part of it was because I always knew that you know we had a close relationship with our environments. However, I knew that the environments that we were coexisting with were not necessarily our ancestral environments. There were environments mm-hmm. that we were you know displaced to, and as a result. Um, you know, my father's story carries a big, you know, it carries the roots of my existence as a displaced indigenous woman. And I think that Freshman Anna Lee starts with his story and then eventually talks about, you know, why conservation from the Western lens is not necessarily not working, especially when it comes to the healing that indigenous peoples in indigenous lands have to undergo. So I think it kind of narrates the whole premises of, you know, why I decided to become an indigenous environmental 
environmental scientists and how my indigeneity has played a big role in the environmental science work that I do that is not necessarily treating indigenous peoples as research subjects or areas of expertise, but whether as researchers themselves, because, you know, I am an indigenous person and also the experts, right? Because oftentimes when we talk about traditional ecological knowledge or indigenous science, as I like to refer to it, it's oftentimes something that, you know, non-indigenous scientists become experts in, right? It's like an area of expertise. <laughs> you look at, you know, all these indigenous um, you know, scientists, right? And they and their research areas are indigenous peoples or indigenous communities. So that in a way I kind of critique that, right? Because that's in a way still kind of treating us as like those, you know, how anthropology treated us in the past is kind of treating us in that way as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. I don't I don't know if an outsider could become an expert of indigenous me personally, of indigenous technologies or, ind- I mean, they could play a role, absolutely, and that's, you know, something that people need to talk about, but to become the expert of it, you know, especially <laughs> after, what, two years, you know, or a master's or four years, you know, five years, a PhD, PhD is only five years. Yeah, <laughs> you see that a lot, right? Even in Hawaii, like, you know, you look at um, the culture of the environment or, you know, all these environmental fields and you see people like in their research areas, they say indigenous communities or indigenous traditional ecological knowledge. And I mean, it's okay as an indigenous person to write that because, you know, you are kind of an expert because that's your community. But when you see non-indigenous scientists write that, it kind of feels a little bit like, I don't know, like it's treating us like, you know, like, subjects and it's kind of creepy and uncomfortable right for us to see that so yeah that's right. what I think as well <laughs> so yes. yeah I mean within my own personal experience I would say from my point, point of view um you know our own protocols don't even allow us our own indigenous people to become the expert after five years mm-hmm. you know and we look to elders to do that yeah. we look mm-hmm. to them who've spent lifetimes who, and who've had that knowledge passed down from their ancestors. So they're working with, you know, hundreds of years of knowledge that has been passed down through generation. So, you know, I think that when, you know, an outsider tries to, to you know, teach that class or something, you know, uh, after a couple of years, it's like we need to have more discussion about those protocols and like what it actually means from an indigenous viewpoint. And so I really, you know, I was really excited to talk to you about this so we could talk about these sort of things as well, like your own experience and your own work and um, this book, which I think is adding so much to an important conversation. Yes, I mean, going into the environmental sciences, like whenever I would like discuss things that, you know, my relatives would tell me, my elders would tell me, as you mentioned, because, you know, there are the knowledge holders, like sometimes I'll be ridiculed by my professors because they were like, oh, cite this, right? Like, why are you not citing this? Um, is this like Jessica's theory, you know, in a condescending way, um, they will kind of ask those questions. And I think that oftentimes you do see non-Indigenous peoples, like we were talking about, become experts. But when we share some part of our stories, right, we're ridiculed, right? We're seen as, oh, you're just making this up. This is not really something that you should be talking about in the sciences, especially, you know, in graduate school. And I think 
that part of writing the book was to kind of heal that process, right? That, you know, undergoing Western academia, especially as I went through graduate school, it was kind of like traumatizing in that way where, you know, I experienced indigenous knowledges being invalidated. But, you know, now when I see those professors who were ridicule me, they're publishing about traditional ecological knowledge. They're kind of collaborating with indigenous communities. So I see that hypocrisy, right? That during the lifetime when I was going, you know, through on through graduate school and taking their classes, they wouldn't, you know, they would mistreat me in that sense, right? They would be like laughing at me because like, oh, you know, so your grandpa, your grandparents had more knowledge than scientists. You should cite, you know, scientific work. And like now I see them changing, you know, shifting their, their narratives because, you know, indigenous science or indigenous traditional ecological knowledge is kind of like the, the it thing, right? That where environmental scientists are trying to learn more about it. But obviously, as you were mentioning, they're not following or respecting the protocols that our cultures kind of entail. And even to us, right, that we have to follow in order for us to, you know, never, you know, we never become experts in our own knowledge, as you were mentioning, until we become elders. And even then, you're still learning. But, you know, it's like, they're becoming experts in our fields. But when they see graduate students or, you know, indigenous students, they're kind of mistreating them and not necessarily supporting them the ways that they should actually be doing that. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Like you're saying, uh, there, it is kind of the in thing right now, indigenous environmental science, sciences. I'm not sure. I mean, you know, it's actually a great thing because I know that people have been fighting a long time for us to be recognized, but of course it has to be done appropriately. And um, so how, why don't you tell us a little bit about the work that you specifically do and how that relates to, um, yeah, the Western world and uh, conducting, I'm not sure, experiments or collaborative uh, research with communities in your own communities and what, what your objectives are and your research goals are in that. Yeah. So basically before I start, you know, like you were mentioning like a research project or an experiment, I usually just sit with my communities or sit with the communities that I'm working with and ask them what they want, you know, what they need. Because oftentimes, you know, as scientists, we're taught that we sh- we know it all, right? Where we come up with these hypotheses, where we come <laughs> up with these research questions and then go to work with the indigenous communities. But sometimes those research questions don't necessarily support them or help them in any way. aside from, you know, kind of benefiting the scientists, um, what will you call it, their academic or, you know, their experience, their CV, their resume. So one of the things that I do is, and this is like important for me, is that I ask the communities what they necessarily need um, in the environmental sciences, right? Like something that's related to the environment. And that's how I start my projects because, you know, I have that privilege, but also like my elders and my parents have taught me the responsibility to use that Western knowledge to kind of support my communities. So I kind of ask them what they need. And then that's how I come up with those experiments. But instead of, you know, not necessarily consulting them, I work alongside them in every process or in every part of the way. Right. Cause oftentimes we talk about consultation um, with communities that we're working with, but we don't necessarily kind of, you know, work side by side. Then we just ask them questions and, you know, by the end or towards the 
the beginning and that's called community-based participatory research. But the way that <laughs> I see it, you know, it's like you have to include the communities in every part of the way. And if they say no, you got to take that no and redo something or rework something. And I think that that's something important in my work. Obviously, it does take longer to kind of start or complete a research project, but it's something that, you know, aligns with my principles, the way that I grew up and aligns mm-hmm. with my community's protocols as well. Yeah. And so do you ever, do you encounter no? And if so, does that happen often or not at all? Yeah, sometimes I encounter no's and it's more necessarily, you know, because sometimes, you know, what we fail to see is that indigenous communities were not monolithic neither. So, you know, mm-hmm. while some people may say yes, other people are going to say no. So a lot of my work kind of has to do with like kind of becoming the moderator so that the community comes to a consensus because, you know, the community is not always going to be 100% yes. There's always going to be people who, you know, don't necessarily see it that way. And I think it's kind of moderating how do we get to the middle and I think with conservation right what we call conservation in the western world a lot of you know people have different knowledge systems that they want to carry within the conservation work and I think that you know with conservation as a result we see how even the way that conservation tends to be more linear is not necessarily aligned with how indigenous peoples um, or our communities kind of view healing our environments or protecting our environments because you know it's conservation is very like linear right with whether where it's either a or b but not necessarily there's no middle ground there's no more there's no more than two solutions to conservation so i get to see how even within the western worldview there's a lot of things that we worship today that are not necessarily aligning with indigenous worldviews as well oh wow and so do you have any of those examples um in your book like um uh, specifically, like wh- which communities are you working with? Like, were you able to go back to your um, s- communities in El Salvador or and and work with them as well on a certain project? Can you tell us about any yeah. projects? Yeah. So one of the things that I kind of like discuss is like the whole notion of national parks, and I mean this is not to say ah. that I'm totally against national parks, but national parks. <laughs> You know, have kind of like um, ripple their effects across the Americas, right? Like either ah. North America all the way to South America. And oftentimes those national parks are meant to be more touristic in the way that, you know, it's, it's created for tourism, not necessarily for the indigenous peoples who were displaced or who are currently living by the national parks. So one of the areas that we discuss and, and that I discuss in the book that I provide case studies for are national parks, right, in El Salvador, where they used to be Maya Chorti lands. But because, you know, somebody decided to convert it into a national park, um, especially we have a lot of rainforests in that area, um, a lot of our rainforests forests have become national parks right for tourism as opposed to letting the indigenous communities who we still have that knowledge towards or caretake of those lands so that you know we see a lot of um agricultural like you know when it comes to cattle ranching and all those things are kind of destroying our forests but you know they're still allowed to do that. And I think that oftentimes we see how, you know, in terms of like conservation created for like ecotourism kind of goes against, you know, actually benefiting indigenous communities at the end of the day. So those are oh. some of the key studies I discuss. Oh, okay. So um, yeah, the national park thing, but like that's a, an interesting history. 
or sad as that history. Yeah. People being displaced, displaced for land. But now it's becoming sort of, sort of a trend that can be found in Central and South America. Yes. Wow. Okay. And so now, currently, um, what would you like to see with your, with your book, you know, and the, where all the work that you've done and that you're putting out into the world? Yeah, so I think that I, you know, the book doesn't like provide solutions because oftentimes people, when they look at indigenous books, they think that, you know, one indigenous book is going to teach them how to be more inclusive of indigenous peoples or, you know, with the whole anti-racism movement, we saw how a lot of people were picking up, you know, books written by people of color that had the title anti-racism, right? And they thought they were going to talk how to be anti-racist, right? And I think that with this book, what I kind of mentioned is that, you know, in order for us to decolonize, you know, which is another trend that I have seen a lot, is that we know decolonization is not necessarily like a one layer. It's kind of multi-layer, right? Because there's a lot of things that colonialism introduced. But in order for us to even be, before we begin that decolonization movement, especially for non-Indigenous peoples, like there's a lot of self-reflection and education mm-hmm. that they have to do for themselves, right? right? They shouldn't look for indigenous peoples to kind of educate them. They shouldn't look for, you know, black people to educate them on how, you know, to do certain things. I think that the self-reflection that they have to do, because, you know, often science, we see the white guilt, right, where people feel guilty for what their ancestors did. But oftentimes we don't see them actually trying to take action to undo those things that their ancestors kind of introduce into our lands. And I think that uh, hopefully one of the things that I talk about in the book is that we should make room for indigenous peoples to write about themselves as opposed to having people write for us, right? Because we see that a lot um, across indigenous communities where non-indigenous peoples are kind of publishing on our communities or on our people as opposed to our people being given those opportunities. So hopefully it starts planting those seeds. Um, but it's not going to, you know, undo everything that has been done against us, especially when we talk about genocide, something that, you know, as we were mentioning before, is not necessarily something in the past. For many people, it's still in the present, right? It's still ongoing. And, you know, hopefully it starts to spark those questions. And I think that the book, because I was allowed to be me, it's going to make a lot yeah. of people uncomfortable, right? Because I wasn't, one of the things that I loved is that I wasn't forced to tailor it to, you know, a certain audience. I was just allowed to write whatever I wanted to write. So I'm I'm looking forward, you know, the negative critiques as well, because it's not, you know, I didn't write it where, you know, I, I kind of comfort people into their guilt. I talk about the things that have been done, the things that should be done in order for us to undo the harm that we continue to face today. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. It felt very, your, your, <clears throat> your book felt very honest. And actually that's why I loved it. I mean, <laughs> you know, if you're writing for an indigenous audience, then it's going is, you know, you wrote the, the right things, you know, but you tailored, tailored it perfect to relate to, uh, indigenous people who are going kind of through the same things or who can relate to your personal family history and to um, your vision of what your your work is trying to do in terms of uh, working with your own communities in, in respectful ways and in terms of uh, trying to change a lot of things within the Western system that need to be, that need to be changed, you know? 
Thank so, you. I mean, bravo, <laughs> bravo for that. You know, if maybe that other audience is the wrong audience who doesn't like it. <laughs> yeah, thank you. But yeah, it's something that, you know, that yeah, especially since I started writing when the pandemic started, that's when I received, you know, the book deal or the contract. And I think that, you know, part of it was like, oh, I just want to write so that I can kind of heal myself. Right. Because oftentimes we forget that writing should be healing because, you know, we're forced to write certain things or a certain way in Western education. So I just wanted to write something that was going to, you know, allow me to heal and allow me to provide testimonies from my relatives and other community members that, you know, have experienced the same things that my family has underwent as well. Yeah. And speaking of that, how does how does your family feel about your book and your any community or any feedback uh, from your book and your work? Yeah, so um, they were, at first they were confused because they thought somebody was writing the book for us. Because, you know, oftentimes, like, I am the first in my family and, like, you know, in my entire generations to be able to receive a PhD. So, you know, education mm-hmm. was something that was limited or not guaranteed, you know, guaranteed to us, especially during my parents' generation, because, you know, my father was trying to survive. So he didn't really get the opportunity to go to school. But I think that, you know, when they they found out that I was writing it, they were so excited because it, in a way, is kind of healing for all of us because our, you know, my generations, you know, the previous generations have been denied the educational experience. So they're really excited. Um, they love how some of them are, came out in the book because of their pictures. Um, I think that's their favorite oh. part of the book because, you know, they're <laughs> like, oh, wait, I'm inside a book, you know, especially yeah. like my nieces, my nephews, my parents and, you know, elders as well. They're like oh that's me um you know they're showing everybody in the community that they came out in the book um and hopefully you know it kind of allows them to finally see themselves reflected right because oftentimes we are our elders have been told that their stories are not needed or not important and i think that for them to see their stories actually being written in a way that, you know, I kind of consulted them in the entire process, they're, they're loving it. So I think that, you know, I'm, they're being really supportive. And like I mentioned, they're excited that some of them came out, their pictures are on the books. So they're showing off, you know, <laughs> in that sense. Uh, that's great. That's great. And um, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure that they would be, it, feel, it feels like what they're, their own history is important, their own family and personal history too. Yeah. Yeah. And so is that actually, I want to ask you also about how you came up with the name Fresh Banana Leaps because I know it's, it's a part of your history. And so uh, you put it, put that on the book. So it must be important. Yeah. So I think that, um, I start the book telling that story. So usually during the war, my father, um, he was in his encampment, right? Cause he joined, he was forced to join the guerrilla. So he was in the opposing, um, regime against the government, right? Against the army. So during a uh, time period when he thought he was going to lose his life, he, you know, they were being shot at by the army because they found the location of their encampment. And then they, the, you know, there was helicopters or airplanes dropping bombs. And my father thought that he was going to pass away, right? Because, you know, they were bombarding the, his entire encampment. So he kind of saw refuge under a banana tree. And this was the banana tree oh. that he was, you know, that he had played with, that he would climb up and get bananas for, um, for the rest of the people 
because you know a lot other people were scared of heights especially you know children during that age because most of them were children even though they didn't see themselves as children right they thought they were adults um because you know they were forced to do something so violent right. and i think that he saw a bomb drop on the banana tree and you know <gasps> that he was going to die but instead of the bomb igniting um the banana leaves kind of wrapped the bomb in a way that it didn't ignite the bomb and i think that um oftentimes you know for people you know for non-indigenous peoples that may seem like oh surreal or it seems magical right but for my dad it's something that he always taught me that nature protects you if you protect nature in return and i think that because he had built that kinship with that banana tree um and treated it as, as a relative right because oftentimes we forget that you know plants are also a spirit that so we can also talk to them it kind of you know kind of saved my father and you know and it's the reason why my generation is here why i'm here so I think yeah. about their fresh banana leaves because it kind of gave him a fresh start. And it also kind of talks about how even banana trees are displaced into El Salvador, right? They're not native to our ancestral lands, but they have become our relatives. And I think that it plays a big metaphor in the way that even today, many indigenous Maya people are displaced, but, you know, we are still relatives to other people and we have become mm -hmm. adapted to new lands the same way that banana trees have become, you know, adapted into our cultures. And we use banana leaves to make tamales. We make we use banana leaves to cook. So they have been integrated in something that's important for indigenous peoples, which is food and traditional foods in that case. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a powerful story. I I didn't um, know to that depth that that's why you had named the the book um, Fresh Banana Loops, but it really show, goes to show like how serious these things can be, like our environment and who we are and mm -hmm. our family, and it's not just a, as you said, not just like research subjects, right? Yeah, like, this, these are like life and death sort of relationships that we're talking about. So that's absolutely well beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, and I did learn from your book about uh, banana leaves being imported. And I was like, oh wow, I never would have thought that. It <laughs> actually brings, um, I don't know, because you know, um, a lot of. Um, imports and exports of bananas come from Latin America. So, you know, it has become kind of the face of bananas, right? Yeah. But um, uh, it actually was interesting because that, that, as you talk about connection, it, it does bring us to a Pacific connection, which is also what we're continuing right now. Because we have, in the Pacific, we have bananas as well, but they were brought in from our ancestors from Southeast Asia through migration. Oh, wow. Yeah, so now we are continuing this relationship, you know, like the change and the migration and reestablishing uh, new relationships. And if you want to think about it metaphorically or poetically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, um, I really want to thank you for giving us, you know, time today to share your stories and your histories and um i feel like i've gotten to know you and your family so please say hello to your family for me and <laughs> oh, thank you <laughs> i yeah. hope uh, they're all doing well and 
Um, if you want to add anything else about your book that you want to share to to our um, our listeners. I mean, you know, I think it's important to support Indigenous scholarship written by Indigenous peoples. And I think that, you know, hopefully it's not just this book, but people also start purchasing other Indigenous written books, especially mm -hmm. from across the world. Right. Because we the books that are, you know, bestsellers tend to be written by non-Indigenous people. So hopefully that's something that, you know, we spark through this conversation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I I highly encourage people to um, read this book and to engage in it, especially to engage with these sort of conversations um, from Latin America to Turtle Island to the Pacific. I mean, you know, our histories have been, as you said, told for us. And so that's actually the point of Native Stories podcast is to have our own selves tell our, our own voices, tell our own stories and to um, show the world what richness we offer and we have and how important we are to this world, you know. So thank you so much again for um, taking time today. And um, I'll just go ahead and close out that uh, if any of our listeners want to um hear more of our, our work that we do, you can follow us on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. And uh, as usual, our we have our app called Native Stories. We have our website, nativestories.org. So please follow us um, and please follow our important stories that we highlight. Thank you so much. Mahalo nui kako. And um, until next time. Jessica, would you like to say goodbye? Yeah, thank you. And thank you, Bahia, for welcoming me to your space. And have a nice day. Thank you.